Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're featuring two Q&As for films now playing here at the Film Society. First, you'll hear Ahmad Kiristami, son of legendary Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiristami, discuss his late father's final film, 24 Frames. Consisting of 24 four-and-a-half-minute sketches, the film is a series of wordless segments elaborating on the filmmaker's lifelong fascination with photography. After that, you'll hear a Q&A with Sebastian Lelio, the director of A Fantastic Woman, which is nominated for the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. It stars newcomer Daniela Vega as Marina, a transgender waitress and aspiring singer coping with the untimely death of her boyfriend as she faces scrutiny from authorities and family members. For tickets to 24 Frames and A Fantastic Woman, head to filmlink.org. Let's go now to our conversation with Ahmad Kiristami, followed by our Q&A with Sebastian Lelio. Hi. Hi. I'm uh, Godfrey Cheshire. Please welcome Ahmad Kiristami to the stage. Ahmad Kiristami, please welcome Godfrey Cheshire. Uh, it really is a pleasure to see this film again. I love this film. And I will say it's very few films you can <clears throat> get up after and say this film has got to be kind of unique in cinema. I don't know if there's anything close to it. It's, it's different from, I mean, it makes you think of a lot of other things, but it's different from any any feature that I've ever seen. And even though it's very, also very different from uh, Abbas Karastami's previous films, it's sort of full of the spirit and a lot of the aesthetic concerns of them, is, I think. Um, I know that uh, the, he, the film was mostly completed, but not entirely completed when he died in July of 2016. And you had a lot to do with completing the film. And I want to talk about that. But let's start out with his fascination with, with photography, because it sort of comes out of that, right? Um, I was reading an interview with him uh, today, actually, in a book that was published of his photographs in Iran in about 2000. You know which one I'm talking about, the big book? Okay. Anyway, in the interview, they asked him um, when he started getting into photography. And he said it was in the beginning of the Iranian Revolution that um, there, w- there was a big work slowdown at that time. I guess that's a, probably an understatement. Uh, and so he had a lot of time to fill. And he, I, I sort of got the feeling that he wanted to get out of Tehran. And this was a way to do it. And maybe there were things going on at home that made him want to get out of, out of Tehran. But um, that's where he said it started. Now, uh, he had started out earlier in university as an artist studying painting and that. And he'd done graphic design and things. And he'd gotten into filmmaking. Uh, but uh, at this point, uh, he, it was around the time of the revolution that he started. You were a little kid. Do you remember anything about him beginning his fascination with photography? I do remember. And I, that's one of the things about Abbas, that you always had so many different stories that you never knew which one is right, which one's yeah. real, which <laughs> one's not real. Uh, but let me, before, I, before I answer that, let me say something that always I prefer to start with this, that um, as some of you may know, Abbas was sick for four months uh, because of the surgery that he did before he passed away. And at some point, he lost his voice completely and he couldn't talk. And one thing that he told Bahman, my brother, was one thing that is more difficult than the, the sickness is I can't talk and somebody else should talk on my behalf. And I always remember that. And I'm sitting here on his behalf talking and I'm not... I feel guilty about that. <laughs> but uh, beside that, I think here, specifically tonight, we have you here. You know more about his cinema than I do. And uh, we have Paul Cronin here the, who wrote oh. a, a, a great book about him. He went sitting back there. Yeah. He wrote an amazing book about uh, his master. I think he went to his master class for 10 years. It's called Lessons with Kiarostami. Lessons with Kiarostami. I highly recommend, if you're yes. interested, I highly recommend checking that. But I think he knows about my father a lot more than I do. And he also, um, Paul also translated a lot of uh, Abbas's poetry, poetry and has yes. published a 700-page book of that. Yeah. And it's really great. And there's such a relationship not only with photography, but also with poetry, yeah. I think, in, in this, this but, film. But with you, I want to say, I want to tell one, uh, one story. Many years ago, I live in San Francisco. And many years ago, there was a, a screening of close-up at MoMA in San Francisco. And Godfrey was there, and he was talking about close-up, and he talked about bamboozle, that how this film is about bamboozle, that everybody is... Uh, bamboozle, bam- s- yeah, somebody, somebody else. Somebody else, like 
Sabzian is doing Ohanha family, but my father is doing all of them, all these things. And at the, at the talk, he said that uh, even the court scene is part of it is fake. And after the screening, I told Godfrey, it's not true. The, the court scene is not fake. I said, no, it's fake. I said, no, Godfrey, it's not fake. He said, it's fake. So I had to call my father that night. I said, Godfrey says that the court scene is fake. Is it true? There was a pause and said, yes, Godfrey is right. <laughs> so, so even you know more than I do about this cinema. Well, you're right. He has different stories uh, that you, you never know exactly which, which one is, is which is the right one. But he all as long as I remember, he did photography. But it is true. After the revolution, the cinema was basically shut down in Iran for many years. Yeah. Until like for five, six years. Yes. He didn't make any film those years, so he did different things. Uh, he did a lot of carpentry. He 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 made different things. He made the. Um, the dining table at our home, all these things. And one of the things that he started doing a lot more was, um, was photography. And he had a Yashica yes. camera that he took most of his pictures with that only one lens. Right. And then he changed into better gear. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I remember I went shopping with him at B&H Camera here in New York one time. He, he definitely upgraded his technology. But um, so he, he did a lot of it from then on. I think he, he it was something... Uh, a lot of it had to do with nature and wanting to go out into nature. I mean, he didn't just do photography and take a lot of pictures of people and around the city of Tehran. It was a lot of it had to do with going out into nature. Yeah, in in all of his photos, he on the last two um, collections that uh, that we have not shown them anywhere yet. Okay, hopefully it's going to come out. But uh, he never have had people in his pictures. It's mm -hmm. nature, doors, yes, uh, trees, yes. Um, those kind of things. He never had people yet. Right. And, and part of it was, I think he there was a fascination with nature, but also it meant getting away and having a kind of meditative solitude by himself away from all other things. I mean, I know that he said in this interview that sometimes he went with one other person, a friend or Baban or something, but he also often went alone just to be by himself. That's true. And, and he, he usually said that uh, going to nature is a way to wash his eyes. Yes, yes, I think uh, it's a great Also, expression. somebody said something about 24 frames that I, I found great, uh, fascinating. He said, this is the first time I see somebody visualized silence. That's a, that's a very nice way to put yeah. it, I think, yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, he, he did this, and you know, you and I got to be friends first when I started going to Iran in the late 90s. And at that point, you were living in Tehran, and you were in the computer business. And I think when we were talking about this film, you said that maybe one of the first things that started him moving toward this film was that uh, you you scanned some of his prints for him and then he saw that he could manipulate the images uh, digitally? So I would say that he loved manipulation in general, like not just his <laughs> films, but he loved playing. That was, his was, he was very playful and that was his part of his playfulness. Uh, in his pictures that the, he took with film, yeah. Like he would go to, uh, there's, a, there's a great documentary called 76 Minutes and 15 Seconds with Abbas Kiarostami yes. by Seyfullah Samadian. Yes. So you see a little bit in that documentary that how he wants to change the contrast of some parts. This is old days when he had film mm. and he would um, use the, uh, the film yeah. to, for his pictures. But then the first time he had digital, he wanted to scan some of those and then he started taking digital pictures. Uh, and he wanted to make some manipulations and he would come to my office and sit there and say, can you do this? Can you do that? And little by little, he learned about the, the, the technology he could use. So he was the opposite of, he didn't understand technology. He had a cell phone, but he didn't know how to use the address book. He had to punch in the number every, every time he wanted to call, but he knew exactly what to ask. So he learned little by little and you see it in different things coming out at the same time. These two photo series that I, I mentioned, the one is called Monet and Me, the other one uh, is called Regarde um, Moi or Look at Me. Right. Uh, in those two photo series, he used computer a lot, and you see a lot of the same change in his mind that you see in this film. Yeah. yeah. Monet and Me, he takes the images of Claude Monet's paintings and, and, and he his does own, what with him in his and own? His own pictures, and he, so he has combined. Monet's painting with his own photos. Yeah. Yes. 
Well, they're very interesting. Well, to me, in, in uh, encountering this film and just also just thinking and writing about um, the latter part of his career, you know, I actually just came up today with a phrase that I think I may use in my in what I'm working on now, uh, Karastami's millennial pivot, because it seemed to me that around the time of the millennium, he, well, he'd made all these great films, these masterpieces that had won all these prizes, but then he started being much more experimental after the wind will carry us, it seems to me. And he, he did ABC Africa, which was a kind of an improvised documentary that he didn't even, they just shot, he and uh, Saifolo with mini, mini DV cameras and thinking these were notes and then decided to make a whole feature out of the notes. And then he did um, 10 with these very uh, small digital cameras and such. And in a way to me, it was surprising that he embraced digital in the way that he did because he was, it seemed like he was married like a lot of other great filmmakers to the celluloid image, but he made a very fast Actually, he was not. He didn't he care. He, he saw this, all of these things as different ways of expressing himself. Yes. And the bigger the crew was, the yes. more difficult was, the, the, the more interference he had with right. expressing himself. Right. So he always looked at ways of reducing his, his right. crew. Right. And usually his crew was very small. He had like the whole crew was like under 10 people. Right. Um, so and digital gave him the opportunity to reduce it. Yeah. And also with Taste of Cherry, he had a lot of problems um, yes. with, the, with the ending that he shot the film and they, uh, they ruined the negatives in the lab. And then he shot it again and the same thing happened. It happened twice. With digital, he didn't have to do with any of that. Right, yeah, exactly. Actually, if you don't mind, I want to say a story. Sure. Uh, I apologize for the technical problem that happened. But it reminded me of something. Uh, he has a film called The Traveler, Mosafir that I don't know if you have seen it or not, but at the end of the film, this kid goes to buy tickets and right when he gets uh, to the will call place, uh, this, the guy says that we are out of tickets right there. And so I saw the film when I was a child, but when I was 14 or 15, I asked him like, wasn't it a little cheesy that right when he got there, you said the ticket, they were out of ticket? And I said, yeah, when I look at it, yes, but you wouldn't believe it that this is the story of my life. It happens all the time to me. That when I get there, it happens to me. And I have a lot of technical issues. Like whenever I sh show my films, something goes wrong. Like most sensitive audience. And I said, no, I don't believe you. And then after a while, that thing kept repeating and repeating. And he was like, did you go down? Didn't I tell you? And the last time actually I saw him was two years ago, two and a half years ago in uh, Toronto. Uh, well, he was there for uh, a photo exhibition that was also showing where's my friend's home, a digital remastered copy. They yeah. also showed two frames of 24 frames. Mm -hmm. And they had technical issues. They, on, they could only show one of them. Uh -huh. The second one they had to skip. <laughs> yeah. And said, again, he told me, do you remember I told you this? <laughs> And, and tonight this happened. I'm sorry about that. So. <laughs> well, his spirit is with us then. Yeah, and yes. exactly. You know, one of the most famous instances of that was when Close Up was uh, shown first outside of Iran in Munich, I believe, and they mixed up the reels. And he decided he liked it better. So he went back and, and mixed up the reels himself and recut it. So the, the first version of Close Up I saw was different from the, the next one I saw. Um, the same thing with the ending of um, Taste of Cherry. Yes, yeah. e exactly. Um, the, you know, one of the things that surprises me about this film is that, you know, he, he committed himself with this to be in front of a computer for a very long time. I mean, that's really what this work was. He, he did it with, in his, uh, the office in his basement, basement in his, yeah. at home, with uh, this guy, Ali Kamali, who was yeah. the one that knew and how actually to... actually, Salma was there also. Who's Salma that? was uh, Abbas' assistant, just sitting back there. Oh, okay. Um, Hi, Salma. <laughs> but... Uh, I would think that sitting in front of a computer for a very long time would be the last thing that he would want to do. What, what do you make of this decision? To when do? he worked, I, don't, I think he didn't care. Actually, Ali says this, that, that they would work for 10 hours on this. Yeah. And we're like, oh, we're tired. Let's take a break and work on Mona and me. <laughs> yeah. So taking a break didn't mean not working. It meant right. working on something else in right. front of computer again. Right. And even though he didn't understand the technology at all, he was ha happy to just... But he just, knew what to ask. Yeah, yeah he, knew, he, he didn't know how to do it, but he knew what to ask. Right. Well, the, the things about this I, I want to ask is that, you know, he is using original photographs of his, except for the very first one, right? Uh, not exactly. Really? No. Really? Well, explain that. So um, some of those photos are real. 
I remember that the, the photo that you saw in Paris with the Eiffel Tower, yes. that frame, that was real. I remember that uh, he told me the story that this group of people, they were standing there and they were mesmerized, just looking at the Eiffel Tower as if it was, a, it was an amazing thing and they wouldn't move and they were not aware of what was going on around them. So that was a real thing. And then he animated the same thing, basically. Right. But many of those pictures did not exist. He just brought different elements from his different pictures, like a tree from here, a mountain from there, snow from here, and then adding a, a footage, a stock footage that he found on internet from a, a wolf walking. <laughs> so that was it. But he, he imagined the whole thing. But all of them sort of start with a photograph or include some photograph? No? So included parts of different photographs. Yeah, yeah. But like many of those pictures, there's no picture that looks exactly like that. Okay. Like the Paris picture yeah. is a picture that looks exactly like that. Right. It's but many of them... They just, he created, uh, uh, um, how do say, like he brought different elements from different pictures. Right, right. Um, and he built the whole thing on computer. Right. Well, you know, one thing I thought about in watching it this time is that um, it is, uh, you know, when you first hear about it, it's based on his nature of photography, a lot of it. And yet his nature of photography includes a lot of other stuff that's not like what you see here. A lot of green fields and mountains and beautiful pastures and trees, stands of trees and such. A lot of that's not here. This is a very, you know, you see a lot of seascapes here. You see a lot of snowy uh, landscapes. But... Um, how do you suppose he went about choosing these as opposed to the other kinds of nature photography that so he had? So my guess is, uh, is as good as yours. Maybe Salma knows more and she can tell us. But he loved snow in general. Yeah. And one of the very first series that he had uh -huh. was Snow White, yeah. all in snow. Uh -huh. And the contrast that you see there, he loved, he loved it. Right. Also, all these CGI stuff that he did in the film right. was much easier. Like there were problems, so he would add snow to it. It would yeah. cover some of the problems. <laughs> yeah. You cannot do it with like a green. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so part of it was becoming because of the technology. Part of it was because he loved snow. <laughs> and again, that's my guess. Well, I was trying. I know part of it, like like a lot of those snow and rain and all those things, yeah. was there to cover some of the things that you... <laughs> you, you were not supposed to see. Well, one thing that, that struck me as a possible reason was that uh, there are in every, you know, in each of these frames, uh, some living beings. They're mostly animals. And it seemed like maybe he chose those, these particular backgrounds to suit the animals that he wanted to go in there. Or conversely, the, the, the backgrounds suggested certain animals that would be there. But I wanted to ask about the animals. Were, were those animals based on any real images? I mean, there's a thing for uh, credit for animal wranglers or something in the end. Where there, Did he photograph animals to put them in there? I'm, I'm glad you asked. All those names that you see at the end of the films, yeah. they're just nonsense. He just added the... It was <laughs> part of him being playful. The whole, the whole crew that work on this film, there were like four people. <laughs> so all those names is just Abbas being playful. And, and if, you, if you can read those names in Farsi, they usually have a, a funny... <laughs> Rhyme or find meaning. Uh, so there, there were no. Some of some of the frames he shot, he used green screen and he shot. He shot but some animals. Them, like he emailed me several times, said if you see any stock footage of any animal, send me. And I think the way he did was, he had a nice picture and then he had a nice video. So he thought, how I can put these things together? Uh huh. Um, many of them. Yeah. I don't say all of them because some of them he specifically when you have green screen that he shot something specifically for that. Right. Uh, especially some of the scenes that we did not use the, the early ones because right. he had six uh, frames from um, paintings. Right. And for those paintings, he specifically went and shot something for that specific frame. I see. But I think after that, when he switched to pictures, he, he used a lot of stock footage. Right. And, and use it there. Well, uh, yeah. Sam, am I right? Yes, she says yes. <laughs> um, well, it, in some of the uh, images of animals, they look like they could well be computer generated. There's some birds and stuff. But then there's some, like these ducks, an elaborate thing of ducks and a thing of cows going across the screen, that look like they must come from photographic images that have been shot somehow. So it's a combination of these various things. Right? It is a combination. And right. you know, um, like if you have seen five. In five, it looks very natural, like a bunch of dogs just walking around. Right. But if you 
watch 76 minutes and 15 seconds, you see that all of it, Abbas is actually doing something with those. So it's not random. It's not, yeah. it's not organic. He, he's uh, directing all those animals. Right. And I think with this, no, literally, literally, uh, with this, he directed those animals on computer because it was easier. Yeah. <laughs> but everything I think he thought about little things. And you know, he was very sensitive to details. Yeah. Let me tell you a story that um, after he passed away, I went back to Iran and there's a little town called Lavosun that where my brother lives. And we went there and we were having lunch at a small, very small restaurant. Uh, and Bahman, my brother told me that the lights here, lighting in the restaurant, Abbas designed this. So what do you mean? I said, yeah, he designed it. And he told me a story. He said he was showing his pictures to the ambassador of Japan, uh, but the house that they were going to was in Lavosun, and he asked me, what's the best restaurant here that if you want to go have dinner afterwards? And I said, this is the restaurant. Um, so he goes to the restaurant a week before, and he looks at the place, and he tells the owner that I don't like your lighting. And I'm like, so what do you want me to do with this? So you have to change it. He said, how to change it? He said, let's go shopping. So the next day they go shopping, he changes the lighting of the whole restaurant <laughs> because he's supposed to go have dinner next week. <laughs> so that's the, that's the level of details that he paid attention to. Right. So you can see everything here, nothing is random, nothing is. He brought all these things, but he thought about every little movement here and there. Right, right. Uh, well, you know, one thing I'm very curious about that you and I haven't talked about before is the soundtrack and how that was created and was it done uh, at the same time each of the frames was done or were all the frames done visually and then the soundtrack created after? Um, I'm glad that you asked that actually because that was a, an important thing. So everything that I did, it was rarely a creative decision that I had to make. Like he had 30 frames, but we had to pick 24. Creatively, I did not change anything, almost. Some of the frames, they were like six minutes long that they were supposed to be cut down to four and a half minutes. That, that's what I did. Uh, one of the soundtracks I had to change later. We showed at Cannes with the original soundtrack, but we couldn't get the copyright for it. So we had to change, which is the frame that we showed twice tonight. Uh, yeah. That one yeah. was changed uh -huh. uh, with Maria Callas singing. Uh, yeah. So that was the only one that I picked. Everything else was picked by Abbas. Uh -huh. So musics, they were picked by Abbas. The basic version of sound effects were done by Abbas. Like, uh, the one that you have, somebody walks in and throws the keys, and there's a, um, you, uh, you, you remember that one? So the, the lady who did the sound, which she was, she was amazing, she remembers, she said that Abbas was very upset that day. He said, let's do the sound, and he was very upset, and he walked in and threw the keys. So he, he decided about the creative part of it. But we redid the sound completely because it was just a test. And we did it in a high quality surround sound. Uh, and we changed some of the parts and we changed some of the videos. So we had to change the sound with it. So we re redid the whole sound when we worked on 24 frames. But it was all based on what he had done originally. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I did not make any creative decision about the film, right. except for that one song, Mario <laughs> Callas. Well, that's, I wanted to get into what you did. And I know that uh, you just mentioned that um, when he passed, uh, there there were 30 frames, but the, the intention was always that this would be 24 frames. Yes. So, um, and originally there had been 40 frames, so he had already cut it down by 10 frames, right? So it wasn't, he'd never finished those 40 frames. He uh. tested different things. He started with with paintings, yeah. but it was, it didn't go the way he wanted it to go. So he right. finished six, not exactly finished, but he worked on six. Right. Then he switched to his photos. Right. And he, Worked on about 40-something frames, but many of them he decided not to use himself. Yeah. Uh, eventually, he had 30 frames, uh -huh. that from which we chose 24 frames. Right. Yeah. And how did you go about making that decision, and did you feel weird about uh, you know, taking the creative reins at that point? I want to tell you another story. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we had a photo exhibition of uh, Snow White in Korea about three months, four months ago. And those pictures, they're almost the same size, but not exactly, like one inch bigger, one inch smaller. Um, and we were sending the prints to Korea and they were framing it there. And it was difficult to have different sizes. And I made a decision to crop those pictures to exact same size. 
for about a month, I had nightmares every single night that Abbas came to my dream and said, why did you crop my pictures? <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And I had the same thing about this film. And even last week, when I was getting close to the screening, I, saw I had the same thing, that he was there, somehow he came back. And I was sitting there, I said, do you know that next week we have a screening? And he wouldn't say anything. I said, are you happy with the 24 frames that we picked? And he wouldn't say anything. <laughs> um, so it was a very, very difficult, I want to tell you that, how, how it was. It was a very difficult process. And I tried to talk to people. One of the most difficult things was, like, I think the way I think, obviously. But I had to think that how Abbas would think. Like, they, they, there's an experience that what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? I had to think, like, what would Abbas do? So I had to talk to people. I had to talk to Ali. I had to talk to different people to, to see what was the idea, how he was seeing this. And then there were some technical issues that we had to make decisions uh, about. Very few things I changed, really, like the frame number three with a cow sleeping there beside the ocean. Like there were things that we couldn't, because the cow that you see there, there are two pictures. The one that is breathing is just one picture, not a video, that they're expanding and shrinking in video to, to simulate breathing. And then we gets up and walks. It's a picture, and there are four legs that are just moving like this. And there was nothing we could do about it. And we worked on that frame so long, and eventually we added that thing on top of it so you don't see it. Like that was the biggest change that I made in the whole frame. But I always try to think and talk to people to see what he thought about this when he was doing this frame. Some of the stories I knew, some of them I did not know. Um, but it was a very difficult, personally, yeah. personally difficult. Not technically difficult, but personally difficult. Yeah. Um, are the, the, the frames in the order that he put and you just eliminated six? Yes. Or they, so yes. this is his same order. order. Yeah. So six of them were paintings Yes. that we decided to eliminate five of them. Actually, that oh. was easy because like we thought about putting three there and two there. And it was kind of unusual to see three paintings and then switching to photos. One painting made sense because it was a nice introduction and because the story saw with, with that, but even two paintings didn't make sense. Right. So that was a relatively easy. We dropped five, five paintings and then we dropped one frame, mm -hmm. but the sequence is the same, yes. Right. Did he ever talk to you or to anyone that you know about the sequencing and what he was thinking in, in those terms? No, you know, he yeah. did not. But let me tell you something else okay. that he talked. What he was doing, he worked on this for three years. Uh, I mean, five years in total, but three years um, seriously. And uh, he showed it to many people, and he loved these films. He showed it to many people, nobody looked at these. I mean, they said, it's beautiful. We don't know what to do with it. It's not cinema. It's not photography. We don't know what to do with it. Uh, like people that he had worked with before, he said, we cannot distribute this film. This is not a film. Right. And, but I think this was, so there's a story about uh, Fantasia, the, one of the animations that Walt Disney did, that he said that I made all the other animations for people and for children. This one is for me. And he used the elements that he loved, the classical music, uh, painting, and animation. And he made Fantasia. And he also said that this is an ongoing project. Forever, I can add more to it and replace it with some of the old ones. Mm -hmm. And I think this was the same thing for Abbas, that it was photography, it was film, it was poetry. I think this is more poetry than anything else. Yeah. And uh, he loved poetry. Right. And this is a combination of all of that. And I think in one of the reviews that came out last week, he's, um, I don't remember where it was. I, I've been reading a lot of re reviews, but it said, if you're not familiar with Kiarostami cinema, this is not a good film to watch. But if you are familiar, this is the best ending. And I very much agree. This is an amazing ending, not just to his cinema, but to his photography, to his poetry, to his video insight, to everything that he did. Everything comes to 24 frames, I think. I think that's that's right. And what did you uh, what what did he think would become of this film? Uh, it seemed to me that before Cannes last year, when it premiered, there was some thought that it would just go to museums. But then it got a very enthusiastic response at Cannes from certain critics, including trade critics like Variety and Hollywood Reporter. 
And so I'm very glad to see that it's playing in a theater because I think most people will agree with me here that this deserves to be seen on a big screen and not just on yep, a, a video. I agree. And um, so he had no decision. He didn't know what to do because uh, when he passed away, this was, this was not ready first of all. But then most of the people that they showed it to, they said, this is amazing, but we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. But uh, we finished this. We showed it at Cannes. I actually have Peter. Um, is, Peter is, is Peter here? So I have Peter to thank this because after we showed this as can, so the conversation that I had with Charles, who's the producer of the film also, was we're going to show this at, at museums. Um, this is a museum piece. But after the screening, I had it the first time I, I met Peter and I talked to Peter and he said, this is absolutely wrong to show at the museum. This is a film that you have to watch from the beginning to end. And it's a very important to to watch the whole thing and get to the last frame, not just walk in, see one frame and walk out. Yeah. And I think he was right. And he, he said he's interested to buy the film for Criterion, yeah. uh, for John's Films and for Criterion. Uh, and after that, I had a conversation. So I owe this to Peter and thank you, Peter, for that. So Peter Becker, everybody, round of applause. <laughs> no, it really is great to see it like this. Um, I want to open this up to the audience uh, in just a minute, but I also want to ask you, what else of your father's work might be coming out in some fashion? You mentioned a couple of photo shows and, and uh, such. What, what else is to be seen? I know that there are no more feature films, but um, there's... Actually, um, so one thing that I'm very happy about uh, is we finally managed to buy the rights of his old films. So all of his films are coming, they're getting restored by M. Cardo and uh, Criterion. So soon we're going to have all of his films, including case number one, case number one, yeah, case yeah. number two, yeah. which is available on YouTube with bad quality and some people have seen it, but it has never had an official screening outside right. of Iran. Right. It was made in 1980 or 81. It won the best film prize at Tehran Film Festival back then and that then, year. And, and, and then they banned it. And then they banned it yeah. the next year. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it has not been screened anywhere. It's an amazing film about the Iranian revolution that is yeah. sort of indescribable. So there, I think there's a new film, yeah. case number one, <laughs> case number two. Uh, but beside that, there are two photo series yeah. that, uh, that are very different from his other photos. Uh, and I'm hoping that those photos would come out sometimes in, right. in the near future. Right. Well, it would be very good to have a major Kiarostami photograph res retrospective here in New York, and I hope we'll get to that at some point. I hope to. So let's open it up to the audience, and there should be a microphone that can uh, go around. Is somebody in charge of the microphone? Okay, I see. Before I say, sorry, before we open up, I would just want to say sure. that something that, uh, so we have a Kiarosami Foundation now that you saw here as well, that uh, we are hoping to bring all uh, a good archive, and there are two board members here that I want to thank. One is, Yes, Peter, thank you again for that. And one is Shirin Neshat. They're not officially on the board yet because we are. We just got our nonprofit status last week. So after that, we have to officially add, but thank you for that. <laughs> OK, uh, so we have questions up here. Yes. Um, uh, I just want to tell you that uh, I did find it uh, calming and meditative, and I had no uh, idea of falling asleep through the whole thing. It was fascinating. And uh, I'm so uh, thrilled that, that he did not just continue doing the same things that he'd been doing over many decades. And this is really, I love that. And, uh, and, but I do see that something about the, uh, the, the effect of the nature here does seen there's some, something in common with some of his earlier films that had the plot and the characters and people, and that is that much of the, of the nature that is portrayed is beautiful, but it's rather inhospitable. And, and the, 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 the livestock and the, the birds and everything really had to, had to fight for that beauty and for that that they had to struggle for their life. And I think that was part of what his experience was. That's my guess. So one thing that he said about, about good films was a good film is a film that you see part of it on screen, but uh, all of it, it's, it's built in your mind. Uh, so 
I'm glad to hear this, your interpretation of it. I think it's great. I don't know what was in his mind, but that was in mine. I think half of it was there, half was in your mind, as he said always. <laughs> um, next question. Thank you. I really love this, this film. Um, my question, uh, frame number 24, I was surprised how that went off. Could you speak about that? Not what I don't mean went off, but it was so different from everything that had gone before it. I, is, at least I felt. It is different in one sense that you have, except for the one that the Paris frame, that's the only frame that you have somebody, a person in it, yeah. I think. Uh, I don't know. The, I mean, it is my interpretation of it. And that the, the emotion of that frame is very different for me. And there's so many, if you read the reviews that came out, you, you have so many different interpretations of it. And I think they're all right. I don't want to. I don't want to tell you my interpretation, to be honest with you. I think if, if you have your interpretation, it's as good as mine. What, what film uh, is it that's on the computer monitor? Uh, the Days of Our Lives? No, not Days of Lives, but... Uh, best Years of Our Lives. Best, days of, best, our lives, best yes. years of Our Lives, yeah. And the music, many people were surprised by the music. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew Lloyd Webber, yeah. Right. Which, uh, which I think worked great. Yeah. On this. But um, it, it, it's so funny to that Abbas Kiarostami's the last scene of his last film has this watching a computer with a Hollywood movie and a Andrew Lloyd Webber soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that I, I heard was the that he could he never had people kissing in his films. Yeah. But the very last film is of two people kissing. And then it's also going back to cinema. There, there are so many different interpretations, but they're all interesting. So the let me tell you another story. The, <laughs> where's my friend's house? Uh, where's my friend's home? The, the story, if you've seen it, the story is about a child uh, who has taken another uh, child's um, booklet and is looking for him to give it to him. And there were two different interpretations when the movie came out. One said, who was the Muhammad Reza who brought all these good things to Iran and then he disappeared, and we kept looking for him, and he, we could never find him. Muhammad Zashah, the old king of Iran. That was one interpretation. The other interpretation was, that was Muhammad the prophet, and that booklet was Quran, Quran that he left for us. And he heard all these things, and he laughed and said they're all true, and none of them are true. So um, this case, I think, is true, and it's not true. And it's this, that's the beauty of that last frame. Well, I never heard him say anything about, oh, this Hollywood movie is a favorite movie of mine. He didn't even talk about Hollywood movies at all. So he told I, me. He told you? Yeah, I'm the, not going to say it. Oh, you're not going to Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, next question. We have, uh, uh, there's one there and then down but, front afterwards. Sorry, hold, let, let me tell you one thing, though. That okay. This was not about his, his favorite film, but you might find this surprising, but he liked Quentin Tarantino. Well, he liked him personally a lot. I remember after they... No, were... even his films. He said something that he said that you cannot take violence out of Hollywood. At least he had added sense, uh, humor to it. And it's tolerable because of that humor. And he liked him personally as yeah. well. Uh, question back here. Just briefly, I don't know if it's, if it's cheating for you to tell us what the, the five paintings that didn't make the cut were. That Bruegel in the beginning, there were others. I'm curious about what they might have been. I don't remember the name of the picture, but there was one from Van Gogh. There was one from uh, Picasso. Salma, can you help me? The other two. You don't remember? Sorry. I just remember two, two pictures, one from Van Gogh, one from Picasso. It's funny about the Van Gogh because uh, I mentioned in my review uh, today that's on RogerEber.com that this makes me think about a lot of other things, other films in the past. And one is uh, Dreams by Kurosawa, where it was using animation in, in, in Van Gogh paintings and such. And I know that Kurosawa was a big admirer of, of your father. Yes, and he was a big admirer of Kurosawa. Yeah. yeah. Actually, they met once and they, they talked. And right. one of the things that he... As part of the conversation that I find very interesting and relevant to this was he says this to Kurosawa that um, I read this somewhere that you said, means Kurosawa, said that films should be made with hearts and should be watched with hearts. But people make films with their brain and watch with their eyes. 
And I think it's very relevant to this because I'm pretty sure that he made this film with his heart. Yeah. And I think it should be watched with, with your heart. Absolutely. Um, was there a question down? You had a question. Can we get the microphone down here? Thanks. Um, in many of the frames, we didn't directly see human figures, but we knew the presence of human from car windows, windows, and background sounds. Yeah. Do you think that opened a new perspective or is that a connection between man and nature? Honestly, I think that's the that's how he saw the world. Uh, like that window and watching thing, I'm sure that thing never happened, like those horse dancing. But him watching, stopping somewhere, lowering his window and watching at nature, that was my father all the time. Um, there's another pic, there's another frame with Ave Maria, uh, with a bird in the back. So that looks exactly like the window that we had when I was a child in our home. And there was a bird that would come, they, they made a nest there. And um, they had little eggs there, and then they had little little birds there. And uh, and I remember that when we had guests, we would lower the window because people would go there and would bother them. So it would lower the shades, the shades, so people wouldn't bother them. And that would happen every year. So I remember you don't see the nest, but the the image of that window and the lowered shade and a bird behind it was something that I saw for many years at my home. And he liked that Ave Maria he played. So that scene is, is one of my childhood memories. So that one is my memory, but I think all of those are somehow his own memories, if it makes sense. Another question? Here? It's a, Shireen? Uh, can we get her the microphone, please? I just want to reiterate uh, what you said, Ahmad. I think it's absolutely true that um, this film, as a final film by Kiarostami, sort of culminates his poetry, his photography, his video, and his cinema all together. Uh, and it contains the humanity, the, the cynicism, the wittiness, the humor, um, and, and that I think it's absolutely necessary to be seen in a cinema from the beginning to the end. Uh, there was another moment where I felt that it was monotonous, or, and I think that continuation um, it's very important, but I just wanted to say, I think he left a great masterpiece at the end of his life as one would expect. And it's Thank you. I, I agree with you. I think it's very important to see this on big screen. Somehow on, short screen, uh, on small screen on TV, we do other things. We don't pay the attention. And I think it's the size of the screen is very important. But at the same time, when I was working on this for many nights, um, I saw this film like a poetry book. Like at, at night before going to bed, like in bed, just the same way that you open a, a poetry book and you read a couple of them and then you go to sleep. I would see a frame or two and then go to sleep. So I think big, big screen experience is very, very important. But when it comes out on DVD or streaming, I think you should experience that on your iPad as well in your bed. That's similarly amazing. <laughs> You're welcome, Peter. <laughs> Thanks, Ahmad, and thanks to all of you, and de definitely tell all your friends to come see it on the big screen. Thank you, Godfrey. Good night. Thank you, everyone. Our special guest is in the room. Please join me in welcoming filmmaker Sebastian Lelio. Thank you. It's a little messy out there. Thanks for joining us. A little wet out My there. My pleasure. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back on our stage. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Um, Thank you for being here. Congratulations on the Oscar nomination and congratulations on the Goya Award last night. Yeah, I was there last night. Thanks. It was a long night. So you were in Spain last night yeah. accepting the prize? Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for getting on a plane to be here with us. It's great that the timing was perfect. <laughs> perfect. Well, everyone here has just seen the movie. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And um, Jamie, you're going to have to sort of give me an, a heads up when we have to run, because Sebastian's going downtown to do a conversation as well. So um, I'm just going to look to you to tell me what time we have to leave. 
Um, uh, what a special movie. And I was able to watch it for a second time tonight with the audience here. Um, why don't you share with us the origins of the project? Tell us where the movie comes from, where these characters come from, where this story comes from. It was, a, well, I guess like in, it's always a gradual process. Um, my co-writer and, uh, and me, we were playing around with the question, what would happen if um, the person you love dies in your arms? And that's the worst place for that person to die because for some reason you are the, the unwanted. And then you would have to let the family know, and, but they don't want you there. And we thought that that could be a film, but didn't feel like enough, you know, for I'm, at least... I, I wasn't finding enough excitement yet. And then due to the process of uh, the script writing work, um, the idea of, uh, well, what if this whole situation happens to a transgender woman? And, and that was like, a, yeah, a milestone in the process. I mean, I heard like a bong, you know, in my head. Um, because it sounded very moving, like there was something very moving about the idea and at the same time full of dangers. Like, you know, aesthetical dangers, artistical dangers, moral, um, you know, traps, and, and that, that was a great sign, you know? But I don't live in, in Chile. I live in Berlin since a few years, so I was a bit detached of, of uh, what was happening in Santiago. I didn't have any transgender friends in Santiago. And um, so my, the response, the immediate response was, we need to stop writing and we need to meet who is out there and see who is out there. And to make a long story short, we met two or three transgender women. That was very illuminating to see them in their norm normality. And it, it, was, it was very revealing. And then and they said, you should, you, you, you should meet Daniela, mm -hmm. the, you know, the protagonist. She, she's a lyrical singer. She has some acting experience. She has a, she's fantastic. Um, so I met her the same, that same day, uh, and that was it. And that was like, okay, I, I loved her. Um, and, um, and after that meeting, I, uh, I understood that I wanted to make the film that I was not going to make it without a transgender actress. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was super happy because Daniela accepted to become our like, cultural advisor. Mm -hmm. So for a year, she was sharing with, with, with us, with me, uh, her experiences. She had no idea of what we were writing about, but she was talking about her life, about what being a transgender woman has meant for her mm -hmm. in a country like Chile. And we became friends. And, um, and suddenly, suddenly, not suddenly, at some point, um, like halfway through the writing process, the idea of uh, maybe I could make a transgenre film about a transgender character mm -hmm. appeared. And that was the second clack, you mm -hmm. know? Because then this idea of a polyformic film that has added, you know, that flirts with different genres and visits different tonalities, mm -hmm. but that has at its center a real beating heart, which is Daniela, mm -hmm. kind of like, um, I don't know, that, that, that's the moment when I knew that I, was, I really wanted to make the film. And then um, towards the end of the writing process of the first draft, I'm, I'm about to finish. Um, no problem. <laughs> I realized that I wanted Daniela to be the star. That I didn't need to look any farther, that she was always, you know. Right in front of you. Right in front of me. Well, it goes without saying that Daniela's performance is so essential to this movie and it's such a spectacular performance. She's just amazing on the screen. Um, Tell me about, tell us about the early, before you decided to cast her in the film, um, tell us about some of the conversations you had at the beginning. I, so you were 
talking with her and then adapting the idea from those conversations. Yeah, but since Danny had no idea about what the script was becoming, mm -hmm. you know, um, somehow her experiences, mm. um, they brought like a, like a texture. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say some things are coming directly from her experiences, mm -hmm. not whole scenes, but uh, the way in which microaggressions mm -hmm. are delivered, mm -hmm. the way in which people behaved when they address her as a he. We uh, see it in the language, even in the way that she interacts with some of the other people in the movie and yeah. whether she should be called he or she, and then how she addresses other people. It's as, it's as specific as that. Exactly, exactly. And then, um, you know, I would call her and, you know, you know, have you ever have a problem with the police? Uh -huh. You know, and she would tell me one or two situations and I would use some little bits of that eventually. Uh, but that's how it, it, was, it was built. But mainly one day she said, you know, the problem is that I am so ready for the world, but the world is, is not ready for me. You know, and, and, and I don't know whose fault is that. And I was like, that, whoa, that's such a, a strong idea, you know? Like, and I think that's in a certain way what the, what the film is about. One of the things that the film is about. Um, because why is everyone so, uh, so uh, menaced by her? Mm -hmm. Why are this, they so afraid? What is it? Well, she's hardly a menacing figure unless she needs to be or wants to be or has to be. Exactly. I mean, uh, I mean what's the danger? Yeah. You know, what is it? Uh, because, you know, there is a dog in the, in the film. And um, I remember watching the film almost a year ago in, in Berlin Film Festival for the mm -hmm. first time mm -hmm. and seeing that scene with the dog at the end when she's naked and has the little round mirror uh, in her legs, um, on her legs. And the dog is there without any problems. I mean, she doesn't, he doesn't judge her. He's <laughs> cool with her. And... Um, and I was like, oh God, this is so like devastating because we cannot even be like dogs. And then during the year, since- the dogs I, are more sophisticated. Dogs are, dogs are more <laughs> spiritual than us, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but after a year of, um, you know, be, uh, traveling with the film and, 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 and seeing how the film has been received, mm -hmm. I, my perception of that dog has shifted, maybe because I'm an optimist. Now I think that, well, maybe it's good news. We can, we can be just like dogs. <laughs> and the world would be much, a much better place, you know? <laughs> Thank you for that answer. I, we don't have a lot of time, but is there a question in the... Yes, I saw your hand first. Hi, yes. Question about the portrayal of strong women, uh, relating it to your previous film, Gloria. Strong women, outlier women, can you talk about that? Maybe not only, um, maybe there's a connection between these characters, maybe there's a, there's, there's a connection that, that drives you to explore these characters. Well, something happened to me with Gloria, because, uh, and Gloria comes from, from a lot from my mother's generation and her friends, and I would, uh, you know, Whenever they would get a, get together, they would drink some pisco sour, and uh, I was I, I always loved to sit down with them, you know, the girls, and and they would talk about their things, and I was like, oh God, that they are going th through so many things, and uh, society is so unfair with them, and like there is a there is a film there, you know. Um, and something about that gesture, you know, of uh, there is a film there, not you don't have to go to, you know, you just have to turn the camera to your right and you have a film. You know what I mean? That, that, that idea of seeing a film where no one else was seeing it was very exciting. And also the idea of taking a, a character that should be a secondary character in a in a proper film, and mm, turn it into an absolute protagonist. 
you know, because usually in the case of Gloria, you know, she's the mother or the wife and then goodbye husband and, and the film goes with the husband, you know, but the game of that film is that we stay with her. Um, and, and that opened many door, doors for me. Um, there was something, I don't know, very liberating about that. And I would say there is a connection with a fantastic woman in the sense that Marina is as well uh, a character on the fringes mm -hmm. of society. And the gesture of the film is to, is to take her and put her at the center and, and say to her, you, you are a film, you know, and, and even though the film is, can be harsh, it is as well uh, like a love letter to her, you know? So I don't know, it's just, it's not strategical. It's following mainly what moves you and, and, and yeah. And, and then you connect the dots after you have made them and pretend that everything, everything was intended. <laughs> was that a signal we can take one more? Okay, let's go right here, right, right in front of you. Yep, right there. Oh, um, first of all, I want to thank you for a beautiful movie. So thank you for bringing this to us. Um, the performance of this actress was amazing. And I was thinking about the, act, the American actresses who were nominated for Academy Awards this year, like Sally Hawkins and Frances McDormand. Her performance was right up there. And uh, I was thinking partly it was her um, talent, partly it was your direction. But there was, there was something about her humanity that shone through that you, she, she was mesmerizing. I just want to hear you say something about that. And also in Chile, has she been nominated for various awards? I mean, what's going on in Chile about her? Because she was extraordinary. Um, well, thank you. Um, she became an icon <laughs> in Chile. Like, she's super well known now and it's been an amazing year for 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 the film and for her you know um, i think what, what she brought to the film is her presence and her body her body carries a history and her skin is impregnated with all those experiences and her eyes hold uh, those memories and i think the camera knows that and i think um this film would have worked with a cisgender actor playing a transgender character, but it would have been a completely different game. I think her presence um, added a dimension that just um, defined the film and uh, somehow elevated the film uh, into um, more com complex realms. Um, I think she's a force of nature. I mean, she sings, you know, she, she's a lyrical singer. It's her voice. That's her singing at the end. And uh, she, she's a self-formed actress. Um, she transitioned being a pioneer uh, when no one was doing that in Chile. So she is really a, something, and, 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 I, and I love characters, and I love writing characters, but what I'm really interested on, in, <laughs> is, uh, is the person that is interpreting them. You know, so for me, characters are like a device for you to create a crack in order to grasp something from the human being that is interpreting that role. And finding ways for the camera to, to capture that. And in that sense, I think uh, her presence and that attitude, that morale of how to shoot and film, um, I don't know, they, they, um, they um, made a, they became a nice synchronicity. Uh, Maybe, yeah. 
So A Fantastic Woman is playing here at the Film Society many times a day, every day, here in the Walter Reed. I hope you'll share the word, spread the word among your your friends and your family, and also join me in not only thanking Sebastian, but wishing him well at the Oscars in a few weeks. And congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. And now we have to go. We have to go. Thank you very much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.